I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, and that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we dare our as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we examine the Bible and begin to ask questions of it and to define it according to a scale of life versus death. In the last few weeks, we have been in Parsha Lech Lecha, which you're following the one-year Parsha cycle. You'll recognize that. Lech Lecha is actually split into five pieces in the three-year cycle. In fact, in Genesis, we'll find that the majority of the Parshas in Genesis are split into more than three pieces. So we will be spending the majority of our time in this experiment in the book of Genesis. Once we get through Genesis, things are going to start speeding up a little bit more. But it's something that we need to be aware of, that Genesis, the pace that we're going now is rather slow and deliberate, but that will increase. So look forward to that. So we've been in Parsha Lecha, the story of Abraham, that began all the way back in Genesis 12. And if you're following the normal cycle, this is the fifth week we've been in that Parsha, and we will finish it today. Uh, the patriarch of Israel is what's being discussed in this Parsha, and how it's his story that introduces many of the ideas that we take for granted in our modern understanding. And we've been exploring those ideas as we've been continuing. Because the story of Abraham it begins with an exploration of topics such as dedication, obedience, faith, patience, so on and so forth. And we saw that Avram, at the age of 75, he was called from the place where his father had already moved his family. Uh, originally, in Genesis 11, we're told that Terah moved from Babylon to Haran, a place that would later come under the control of Assyria. And Avram was called to leave behind everything that he knew, everyone that he loved, his family, his country, his identity, everything that had made him who he was for the first 75 years of his life. And he had to leave it all behind. Because God had made him a promise, and Abraham acted in accordance to the promise of God, despite what his eyes were showing him. Despite famine, despite tyranny, despite being left with the least prospect of comfort and ease. And despite everything in his reality seeming to reveal the opposite of the fulfillment of God's promises. As he looked around him, he didn't see the promises coming to happen. Despite everything working against him, Avram remained true. Avram lived out the promise in his life. And as we continued through the story of Avram, we saw an example and a comparison even of righteousness and faith in chapters 14 and 15. And it was in chapters 15 that Avram's faith was mentioned for the very first time. But as we read in other places in scripture, especially in Hebrews 11, it was made obvious that Abraham's faith was present all the way back in chapter 12 when God initially called him. The fact that it was only mentioned in chapter 15 is the key to help us to see that faith and covenant go hand in hand. Uh, believing in something and not acting in it, not living in the covenant, is, is useless. And it was Abraham's faith that led him to obey. It was his faith that impelled him to his dedication even. 
And as we examine the topic of faith and righteousness, or that right action in connection to the covenant, through the pages of Scripture, we find that it is faith that's the fuel to the righteousness. That faith, trust, and belief impel the believer to act right, to act in righteousness. And righteousness without faith we saw as, as empty and completely worthless, but faith without action is, is dead. Because faith and righteousness, they go hand in hand. And as I've reflected further on the relationship between faith and righteousness, I found that it could be likened to the operation of a car. You can attempt to move your car without fuel. And it will move, but you won't really get anywhere. All of your energy will be spent long before you get to your destination, and very little progress will have been made. Or alternately, you can fill your car with fuel, but if you never get in, turn the key, and press the pedal, you will simply sit in the car and you'll never get anywhere. Well, faith and unrighteousness operate in the same way. You can move your car through your own action, but without the fuel of faith, you'll not really ever accomplish anything. Or, you can fill your tanks with faith, but without even the slightest effort to live out that faith, you'll remain stationary. And both of these options are an incorrect use of the system that God has provided, just as operating a vehicle in those ways is an improper use and will lead to the vehicle not going anywhere. Last week, we looked at the negative example that's presented in Scripture of how patience with God is required to accomplish His plan in His timing and in His power. Because Avram and Sarai, they saw the promise of a seed and becoming a nation, they slipping away from them through human and rational means. But God had made the promise. So rather than allowing God to fulfill the promise according to his will and purpose, Avram and Sarai took the initiative to attempt to accomplish the promise through a way that made sense in the natural realm. Avram, a man of faith, the father of nations, the father of Israel, this righteous man, when he took the fulfillment of the promise under his own power, he created nothing but future pain and suffering. Well, this week the promise is reiterated, and once again, it's taken one step further. The promise was given in chapter 12, reiterated in chapter 13, promised was turned into a covenant in chapter 15. In this chapter, it's a sign, a reminder of the covenant is given to Abram. But the sign is uh, multifaceted and is itself a symbol of something larger and grander than the mere symbol itself. So let's read Genesis 17, and then we will talk about the covenant of circumcision, as it is described and represented in all of Scripture. Genesis 17. And it came to be when Avram was ninety-nine years old, that Hashem appeared to Avram and said to him, I am El Shaddai, walk before me and be perfect. And I give my covenant between me and you and shall greatly increase you. And Avram fell on his face, and Elohim spoke with him, saying, as for me, look, my covenant is with you, and you shall become the father of many nations. Oh, no longer is your name called Avram, but your name shall be Avraham, because I shall make you a father of many nations. And I shall make you exceedingly fruitful, and make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I shall establish my covenant between me and you, and your seed after you in their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be Elohim to you and your seed after you. And I shall give to you and your seed after you the land of your sojournings, all of the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I shall be their Elohim. And Elohim said to Abraham, 
As for you, guard my covenant, and your seed after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you guard between me and you, and your seed after you. Every male child among you is to be circumcised. And you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall become a sign of the covenant between me and you. And a son of eight days is circumcised by you, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with silver from any foreigner who is not your seed. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your silver has to be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And an uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, his life shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And Elohim said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, do not call her name Sarai, for Sarah is her name. And I shall bless her and also give you a son by her. And I shall bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples are to be from her. And Avram fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Is a child born to a man who is a hundred years old, or is Sarah who is ninety years old to bear a child? And Avraham said to Elohim, Oh, let Yishmael live before you. And Elohim said, No, Sarah, your wife is truly bearing a son to you, and you shall call his name Yitzhak. And I shall establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, and with his seed after him. And as for Yishmael, I have heard you. See, I shall bless him, and shall make him fruitful, and greatly increase him, and is to bring forth twelve princes, and I shall make him a great nation. But my covenant I establish with Yitzhak, whom Sarah is to bear to you at this appointed time next year. And when he had ended speaking with him, Elohim went up from Abraham. And Abraham took Yishmael his son, and all those born in his house, and all those bought with his silver, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin on the same day as Elohim told him. And Abraham was ninety-nine years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Yishmael his son was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Abraham and his son Yishmael were circumcised the same day, and all the men of his house born in his house or bought with silver from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Chapter 17 of Genesis was one of my favorite chapters, and it has been for some time. Not necessarily because of its content, but primarily because it contains a rather intricate chiasm, or chiasm. I, I say the word chiasm, it's just what I'm familiar with, but the word is probably more accurately pronounced chiasm. A chiasm is a literary pattern that's contained within text. And we see them all throughout Scripture. We also see them in other authors. Shakespeare used chiasms quite extensively. But this chapter has a chiasm that is awesome to behold because it's nested pieces inside of nested pieces. And it's two chiasms nested within this one chiasm. It's absolutely awesome. And it's rather fantastic to behold. So if anyone would like to see the chiasm that I'm talking about here, wait just a little bit because we have an upcoming project that's going to be announced very shortly and it will explore this idea in greater detail. All of the data for phase one of the project has been entered into the website and I finished a script yesterday for an introductory video to the project. So stay tuned to Facebook and YouTube for this special video announcement on this Chiasm project. I will release the audio of the announcement on this podcast but when it comes out go to YouTube or Facebook and watch the video because the video will contain visual elements that are not going to translate very well into audio. So stay tuned for that. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm getting so close to this project I've been working on for two years and to finally be getting to a point where I can tell the world about it and know that it is 
on the verge of actually seeing the light of day is something that is really awesome to me to reach this point in this project. So we've spoken the last few weeks about symbols in scripture and how some things can be understood not only as a literal thing that it is, but that it can also be understood as a symbol of a deeper truth. Well, in this chapter, we read of circumcision. And this, this chapter is often referred to as a circumcision covenant. But that's not completely accurate. A circumcision is not a covenant in and of itself. In verse 11, circumcision is called a sign of the covenant. And this is something that we read all through Scripture, symbols and signs that reveal that someone is a member of the covenants of God. These things are, are not covenants themselves, but they're rather signs that the covenant exists in the life of the individual. The circumcision is not the only sign of the covenants of God. There are many signs of a person who is fully in covenant. Exodus 31.13 speaks of the Sabbath as being a sign between me and you throughout your generations. The Sabbath is a sign that it is God who sanctifies his people. The Sabbath itself is a resting on the seventh day, not to gain anything from God, but rather as a symbol of deeper truths. It's not our work that sanctifies us. It's his work that's accomplished on our behalf that accomplishes sanctification. And that's one of the beautiful things about the Sabbath is the idea that it's a recognition that God's work sanctifies us and, and that's not something that we can do. The Sabbath is also a physical way that we can point to the God we worship, the God who created for six days and rested on the seventh, and the God who's working in the world right now to produce a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of eternal Sabbath here on the earth. Hebrews 4, 9 through 11 tells us that there remains a Sabbath keeping for the people of God. I think this is significant because the New Testament itself tells us that there there remains a keeping of the Sabbath for the people who are of God, for Christians, for Messianics, for believers in Yeshua. That there is a, we do still need to keep the Sabbath. Well, a few weeks ago, we also looked at how righteous action is a sign of a person's being in one faith. And we looked at James 2 at the time. And it says, so also a faith, if it does not have works, is in itself dead. But some might say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. If we look through Scripture, we'll find many other signs of covenants with the God of Israel. In Genesis 9.13, is, we read of the rainbow as a sign of the covenant that God will never destroy the earth with water again. There are signs of the covenant in the New Testament as well, signs of a believer in Yeshua. Yeshua puts it this way in Matthew 7. He says, by their fruits you shall know them. Are grapes gathered from thorn brushes or figs from thistles? Paul says this in Romans 8 verse 9, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Messiah, this one is not his. Acts 5.32, And we are his witnesses to these matters, and so also to the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. 1 John 2.4, To the one who says, I know him, and does not guard his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. John thirteen fifty five. By this all shall know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And Luke twelve eight through 9 And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man, shall also confess before the angels of God. But he that is denied me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. Each one of these verses from the New Testament has one thing in common. They all describe outward signs of an inward truth. 
You see, from the very beginning, circumcision was not something that was to be accomplished only in the flesh. The circumcision of the flesh is that outward symbol of an inward truth. And we see this in several ways in Scripture. So let's explore these, and then we'll return to the full truth of circumcision. So first, let's look at the positive examples of this. Circumcision of the flesh as an outward sign of an inward reality. So the first place we can look, we can look here. Genesis 17. Abraham given a promise. Abraham believes the promise. Abraham acts in according to the promise. A covenant is cut between God and Abraham. All of these things occur before circumcision is given. Abraham is in covenant. The covenant is not dependent upon the circumcision. It is merely a sign of the covenant. It's two chapters and many years later that the sign of circumcision is finally given to Avram. 25 years after he was given the promise. More than a decade after he was given the covenant. It took that long before the circumcision manifested in Avram. And as we look at Avram and his life, we see that there are these huge gaps, and it gives to us this process that people go through as we as we learn God, as we grow in covenant with him, that the covenant comes first. We, re- we hear the promise. We receive the hope. We enter into covenant, and then we wait for God to work in our lives, and we continue to be faithful and true to what he says, and God will eventually bring about this promise of a covenant that is that we are part of. Romans 4, 8 through 13 has this to say about the covenant. It says, it is this blessing then upon the circumcised only or also upon the uncircumcised. For we affirm, faith was reckoned unto Abraham for righteousness. How then was it reckoned? Being in in circumcision or uncircumcision? Well, not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And to receive the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, while in uncircumcision, for him to be a father of all those believing through uncircumcision, for righteousness to be reckoned to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had in uncircumcision, for the purpose that he should be the heir of the world, was not to Abraham or to his seed through the Torah, but through the righteousness of faith. He's showing us how we can look all the way back here in Genesis and look at the story of Abraham and we can see the gospel process occurring in the life of Abraham. Right here we see the gospel occurring. We see the entry into the covenant precedes any kind of circumcision, whether that be the circumcision of a flesh or the circumcision of the heart. But we'll get into that distinction in just a little bit. The covenant existed. Avram was part of that covenant for over a decade without a sign, and then it was the sign that was then later given to Avram, who was in covenant already. So let's look to another place where this pattern carries out, because this pattern is one that's something that most Christians think that people who are Torah observant don't recognize or don't understand. Too many times I've been accused of putting my works before my faith, but we need to see, we need to look. If we are truly Torah observant, our faith comes first and it will lead us. Our our works don't save us from anything, but they are a necessary part of working out and living out our salvation. So the second time that we see this pattern 
perhaps not the second time in all the Bible, but the second time that I'm going to point to is Exodus 12 and the Passover from Egypt. And the example may not be obvious on the surface, especially since we read in Joshua that the Hebrew people were circumcised at the time of Passover then. But the thing here is that there were many who were added to the covenant. There were many who were redeemed from Egypt and many who acted in the symbol of redemption from sin and death who were not circumcised. A lot of people entered into the covenant at Sinai who were not circumcised. And that is significant. Exodus 12.38 tells us that a mixed multitude went with Israel when they left Egypt. And that that group was at Mount Sinai. So fast forward 40 years or so. Joshua 5, Israel is about to begin the conquest of Israel. And in Joshua 5, verses 2 through 8, at that time Hashem said to Yehoshua, Make knives of flint for yourself and circumcise the sons of Yisrael again the second time. So Yeshua made knives of flint for himself and circumcised the sons of Yisrael at the hill of foreskins. And this is why Yehoshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt, who were males, all the men of battle had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all of the people who had come out had been circumcised, but all of the people who were born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness, till all the nation, the men of battle who came out of Egypt, were consumed because they did not obey the voice of Hashem, to whom Hashem swore to them, swore not to show them the land which Hashem had sworn to their fathers that he should give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. And Yeshua circumcised their sons, whom he raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised, because they had not been circumcised on the way. And it came to be that when they had completed circumcising all the nation, that they stayed in their places in the camp until they were healed. Israel in the wilderness had children born into the covenant, but not given the sign of the covenant. This is one of the central issues that the apostles had to contend with, because there was a teaching going around in the early first century that the way that a person was saved was through circumcision, and that circumcision itself was simply an act of proselyte conversion. So when you read of circumcision in the New Testament, don't think that they're simply just cutting off a foreskin. No, they're, they're including people into the Jewish faith, the, the teachings of the fathers and the oral traditions and so on and so forth. There's a whole lot of connotation held in the symbol of circumcision in the first century that is more than just cutting the foreskins off of a, a penis. So in Acts 15, we see of this debate come to head. In Acts 15, 1, it says, And certain man ca men came down from Yehuda who were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the practice of Moshe, you are unable to be saved. Obviously, that's wrong, because we just read that Abraham was saved as part of the, was a covenant member before he was circumcised. All of those children in Israel that were born in the wilderness were saved. They were part of the covenant, is the image that's given to us. But they did, were part of that covenant without being circumcised. They're saying that there has to be something done in the flesh in order to gain access to a spiritual covenant. Over the centuries, circumcision had become itself a doorkeeper in the minds of many into the entry of the covenants of God. And the problem with this is there's not a single person in Scripture 
who gained access to the covenants of God after receiving their circumcision. That's just three. We've looked at three examples, three positive examples of circumcision occurring after entry into the covenant, not as a means of obtaining the covenant. So let's look at one example of circumcision being a required as a means of entry into the covenant and what that leads to. In Genesis 34, Jacob returned from Haran. He's settled in the land of Israel just outside of the town of Shechem. While there, Dinah goes into the city of Shechem and her virginity is taken from her. Jacob's sons return and find out what has happened. And they react in anger at the shame that has been visited upon their sister specifically and and their family by association. So they make a pact with the people of Shechem. You cannot join our family without being circumcised. Genesis 34, 14 through 17. And the people of Shechem agree. But then while they're in pain, Simeon and Levi enter into the town and they kill all of the men of the city. This pattern is one that the circumcision party of the first century and even of Judaism today wants you to believe is the proper pattern. Take on the sign of the circumcision and you can become one of us. You can enter into the covenant of Abraham by simply performing a physical action on your flesh. You can enter into the covenant of Abraham by taking on our nationality. And that doctrine, that idea that there's something in the flesh that brings you into the covenant of God, that is a false doctrine. The the issue has never been about circumcision of the flesh, and it's never been about gaining anything because of the circumcision. It's the circumcision that's the symbol and the sign of something different. Circumcision of the flesh is something that's a physical outward sign of that inward change. And the goal has always been that inward change. Deuteronomy 10, 15-16 says that Hashem delighted only in your fathers to love them, and He chose their seed after them, you above all peoples as it is today. And you shall circumcise the foreskin of your heart and harden your neck no more. Circumcise your heart and do not harden your neck. Later on, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, And Hashem your God shall circumcise your hearts and the heart of your seed to love Hashem your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you might live. Circumcise your heart to love God so that you live. The circumcision of the heart was always the goal from the very beginning. Circumcise your heart. Do not harden your neck. Do not be stiff-necked. Humble yourself before God. True biblical humility is perhaps best expressed as being willing to accomplish a will that's not your own. It's obedience in the face of oppression. It's obedience despite what you may want. Obedience despite what the circumstances appear to be. And even obedience despite what the social norm is and what it tells you. Circumcise your heart to love God. Matthew twenty two thirty six through 40 says, Teacher, which is the greatest command in the Torah? And Yeshua said to him, You shall love Hashem your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest command. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands hang all of the Torah and the prophets. John fourteen fifteen. he then says, If you love me, you shall guard my commands. 1 John 5, 2-4, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and guard His commands. For this is the love of God, that we guard His commands, and His commands are not heavy, because everyone having been born of God overcomes the world. 
And this is the overcoming that has overcome the world, our faith. The faith is what overcomes the world, and that's acted out through obedience to the commands. Those two passages I read in Deuteronomy, they speak of the same thing. They speak of loving God means to obey God what you desire. And that's the beginning of humility, to act in accordance with the word of God and to do his will regardless. And from this definition, we see that Avram has a circumcised heart from the very beginning. It simply took 24 years for his flesh to catch up with where his heart was. And just as in the case of faith and righteousness, so too with the circumcision and the covenant. We cannot get them in the wrong order and think that it earns us anything. The intangible leads to the tangible. Faith and that inward reality leads the way to proper action of righteousness. Covenant and promise, something that exists only in the realm of potential for us at this time in history, come before any outward sign of these things. The circumcision of the heart has to come first, or the circumcision of the flesh is meaningless. It's pointless. Jeremiah 4.4 4 says, Circumcise yourselves unto Hashem, and take away the foreskins of your heart, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath come forth like fire and burn, with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Jeremiah 9.25-26, See the days are coming, declares Hashem, when I shall punish all the circumcised as if uncircumcised. Egypt and Judah and Edom and the children of Ammon and Moab and all those trimmed on the edges who dwell in the wilderness. For all the nations are uncircumcised and that all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. So what is it according to Jeremiah that brings God's punishment upon his people? It's that being circumcised only in the flesh. Those who are only circumcised in the flesh, God will treat as if they are not circumcised at all. They're no different than the nations. They are just as uncircumcised before him. Leviticus 26, 40 through 42. So moving forward and before Deuteronomy to Leviticus 26, it says, But if they confess their crookedness, and the crookedness of their fathers with their trespass in which they trespassed against me, and that they also have walked contrary to me, and that I also have walked contrary to them, and have brought them into the land of their enemies. If their uncircumcised heart is then humbled, and they accept the punishment of their crookedness, then I shall remember my covenant with Jacob, and also my covenant with Isaac, and also remember my covenant with Abraham, and remember the land. The circumcised heart is not only a New Testament teaching. It is not something that burst onto the scene with Yeshua. The circumcised heart is the truth from the foundation of God's word. It is the circumcision that matters, and the circumcision that matters is not a circumcision that is made with hands. It's incapable of being made with hands. I'd like to see a surgeon try and keep a person alive. Go cut some skin off the heart. Good luck. Colossians 2, 8 through 12 says, See to it that no one takes you prey through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary matters of the word, and not according to Messiah. Because in him dwells all the completeness of God, godliness bodily, and you have been made complete in him, who is the head of all principality and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands, 
in the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh. But the circumcision of Messiah, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through the faith of the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Does this mean that the circumcision made with hands has nothing to profit a believer? Not at all. That is not what Colossians is saying at all. Romans 2, 24-25 says, For the name of God is blasphemed among the nations because of you, for it has been written, For circumcision indeed profits if you practice the Torah. If you are a transgressor of the Torah, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Circumcision indeed profits if you are true to the covenant. Because the circumcision is just a sign that you are being true to the covenant. Romans 2, 26-29 says, So if an uncircumcised one watches over the righteousness of the Torah, shall not his uncircumcision be reckoned as circumcision? And the uncircumcised by nature who perfects the Torah shall judge you, notwithstanding letter and circumcision are a transgressor of the Torah. For he is not a Jew who is so outwardly, neither is the circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But a Jew is he who is so inwardly, and the circumcision is that of the heart and spirit, not literally, whose praise is not from men, but from God. He's saying here that those who are uncircumcised by nature, who are uncircumcised in the flesh, who then keeps the Torah, living it in its proper spirit, working out the righteousness of the Torah, shall judge you who, regardless of your keeping the letter and your fleshly circumcision, you break the Torah. Because circumcision of the flesh only profits if you keep the Torah. Not simply the letter of the Torah, the spirit of the Torah. Those who are not circumcised and yet are able to keep the Torah and its spirit will find themselves in covenant and it will be reckoned as though they are circumcised because they are circumcised in heart. Their flesh just hasn't caught up yet. You can't bear the sign of the covenant and not keep the covenant to its fullness and think that that sign means anything to you at all. Many of us out there are married, or have been. And for those of you who are not married, I imagine that you are for just a moment. Those of us who are married, we bear somewhere on ourselves a sign of our covenant with our spouse. In the West, it takes the form of a ring on our ring finger. I myself, I don't have a ring on my ring finger. I actually have a tattoo on my ring finger that we got for our 10th anniversary because I kept taking my ring off and losing it because of my profession at the time. So, if I bear the sign of the covenant with my wife, right, I have that ring on, but I don't act in a loving way towards her, does that sign of my covenant gain me anything at all? It gains me nothing. If I cheat on my wife, if I abuse her, then my sign of the covenant is absolutely useless. If I do what she says to the letter, no more, no less, and yet I know what she's asking for in spirit, can I just say, well, but I have your ring on my finger, so you just have to let it pass. What if I were put to put a ring on my finger without ever entering into a covenant, never going through a ceremony, never agreeing to a contractual binding? Does it, is it the sign that binds us together? Not at all. The sign is meaningless without the vow, without the covenant, without a ceremony and the declaration of our commitment to each other before God. The sign of the covenant doesn't save you. It never has. 
It's simply an outward symbol of that inward spiritual reality. So if we turn back to Genesis 17, we find that there's a lot more going on in this chapter than simply the circumcision. It just seems as if we read this chapter, circumcision is all that's seen by a lot of people. And it is a larger portion of this chapter, but it's not all of it. Because you see, the circumcision of the heart comes with something else that's symbolized in this chapter. The circumcision of the heart is always accompanied by a change in identity. The things that happen in this flesh here in this chapter, they are spiritual realities for all who enter into the covenant of Hashem through Yeshua. So in the ancient world, when a person was placed in a new position, it was common to change their name in order to help them to assimilate to their new circumstances, to be able to identify with a new identity going forward. In verse 5, Avram receives a new name, and in verse 15, Sarai also receives a new name. His identity is not found in his father. His identity is no longer found in his family or his possessions or even his property, all of which belong to him. Later on in scripture, we'll see a similar thing when Jacob comes out of Haran and into Canaan. He goes through a significant change of his character, and when he's on the other side of that journey, he is rewarded with a new name. He is rewarded with a new position. He is rewarded with a new identity. Hosea, in the book of Numbers, Hosea, he is renamed to Yehoshua, just before their spy mission into Canaan, Joshua. Daniel, Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael, they all had their names changed when they were taken into Babylon. Babylon would do this in order to cause the people to forget where they came from and to help to assimilate them into a Babylonian culture. Naomi, in the book of Ruth, refers to herself as Mara as a reflection of the bitterness that she felt after the deaths of her husband and her sons. That change of identity is something that every person who accepts Yeshua is told that they are to take upon themselves. Our identity is now to be found in promise and covenant with God. Our former person, our former self, our former name, and we'll learn a lot more about name and what, what the full meaning of what name means in Hebrew in the book of Exodus. But for now, there is your character Everything that's gone before is absolutely different. Colossians 3, 1 through 3, it says, If then you were raised with Messiah, seek the matters which are above where Messiah is, seated at the right hand of God. Mind the matters above, not those on the earth, for you have died, and your life has been hidden with Messiah in God. Your former identity is dead. You are now identified through Messiah. Romans 6, 4 through 13. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, that is, Messiah was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. So also we should walk in newness of life. For if we have come to be grown together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also of the resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be rendered powerless to serve sin no longer. For he who has died has been made right from sin. And if we died with Messiah, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Messiah, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer rules over him. For in that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But in that he lives, he lives to God. So you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God and Messiah Yeshua, our master. 
Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body to obey it in its desires. Neither present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Do you read that there? There is nothing about good or evil at all in that passage. It's about us as humans dying to ourselves in the flesh and in the sin of the flesh, and then being raised to new life new life in Messiah because he now lives in us and what has been raised to life after dying can no longer die. But we have to go through that identity change. We have to go through that change of person. We have to become a new creation to embody the hope of new creation in our flesh, in ourselves, to allow that new creation that starts inside to grow outward till it's pouring out of our every word, action, thought, and deed. Our old identity goes away the moment we take on the covenant of God, and we gain a new identity that's based in Yeshua and what He has done for us. And that new identity is an identity that is not wrapped up in our past life. You cannot find your identity in your race or your nationality. You cannot find your identity in your career. You can't find your identity in your education, your family name, your sex, nothing else. Your identity, once you are saved, rests solely in Yeshua. Your identity rests solely in your membership in the covenants of Israel. You are, for all intents and purposes, Israel. You are signed on to the covenants of God, which makes you a member of the seed of Abraham. It makes you Israel. Galatians 3, 27 through 28 says, For as many of you were baptized in Messiah, you have put on Messiah. There is not Jew or Greek. There is not slave or free. There is not male and female. For you are all, all one in Messiah Yeshua. This is a reversal of Daniel and his friends when they were taken into Babylon. When you're removed from Babylon and brought into the kingdom of God, you reject your identity as being from the nations, and you take on that identity with God. You come to identify with Yeshua, not just with him, but you put on his character. You become like him, and you model him out into the world. And this new identity is one that is based on trust. It's an identity that does not trust in our own physical power, or even on the natural way of things of getting done. It is an identity that trusts fully in God and in His Messiah, Yeshua. You see, circumcision itself, on its most base level, was a recognition that the promised Son would not come through human and natural means. Sarah was too old. She was barren. But Abraham, Abraham could still bear children. And so a sign was given of removing that part of his power. In the ancient symbology, of authority and strength, the human male reproductive organ was a sign of power and authority. He's being asked to remove that sign, symbolically, and through that to fully put his trust in God as the originator of life. And that thematically and symbolically, it points forward to the birth of Messiah through means that were not natural. Because we see in the New Testament a woman who is incapable of bearing children. Not because she's infertile, 
but because she's never been with a man. And we see a quickening in the womb that occurs without male involvement. Symbolically, that's what's, what's occurring here in Abraham. The male part of the reproduction is being removed as a symbol. This new identity is more than simply a new name and a new character. It is accompanied by a humility. And it's accompanied by taking on the will of God. And it's taking on the will of God that overrides all parts of our own understanding of how the world works and how we work in relationship to the world. Entry into the covenants of God flips everything on its head, and it removes from the hands and power of man the ability to accomplish anything for the kingdom of God. We cannot do it in our own power. We have to do it through the power of Yeshua. Earlier I read the three signs of the covenant of God, circumcision being only one, the others being rainbow and Sabbath that are mentioned specifically as signs. In the New Testament, we're told that the fruit of the Spirit are signs of people being in covenant with God, and we need to learn those fruit of the Spirit and embody them in our lives. The rainbow that we read of, it was a sign for all for all the earth. Circumcision and Sabbath, however, were signs that were only for Israel, and they actually go hand in hand. Circumcision speaks of how, even in our work, we are not in control, in our labor. The fruit of our labor, the life, both the literal life of, of children and progeny, and the figurative life of being able to provide food and, and comfort to people, health, and so on and so forth, enters our world from our labor, but it only does so through his power and his authority. It doesn't come about because of our own power and authority. And similarly, the Sabbath speaks to a recognition that God provides, and what he provides is enough for us wherever we're at. We can work, our work can never provide enough for life, and it's foolish to think that it could, because there are plenty of people that work and work and work and have everything, but they don't live. They don't have life. Both point to a relationship with God and a recognition of Him as King, Lord, Provider, and the source of our lives and our living. The circumcision, it's not a covenant in and of itself. It's merely the sign of something internal. Outward circumcision of the flesh is that inward symbol of the circumcised heart. And if we turn back to those passages that I read earlier, the signs that a person is in covenant right now, this fruit of the Spirit, we see all of these given as symbols and signs of covenant. The Holy Spirit present in one's life. The fruit of the Spirit. Peace, joy, love, kindness, self-control, so on and so forth. We see that faith is a sign of the covenant. Humility is a sign of the covenant. Righteous deeds is a sign, it's a symbol that one, someone has changed. The fully integrated and faithful life, we find each one of these signs is itself actually a symptom of the circumcised heart. They're not the thing that brings about the circumcised heart. They are the signs that the circumcision of the heart has occurred. And when that occurs, you start exhibiting symptoms of that. Symptoms of faith, humility, 
righteous deeds and seeking out the covenants of God and what it means to be in covenant with God. Each one of these is a sign that your life of sin and death has been discarded as so much waste, and you've taken on a new life in the image of Yeshua. So what we must ask ourselves is when we say that we are in covenant with the God of Israel, we have to ask, Is it? are we simply paying lip service to this idea? Are we simply producing an outward symbol with nothing inside to match? Because speaking the name alone and letting it go at that with nothing else to follow up, it's like circumcising yourself just in the flesh. You're providing this outward sign so that people will accept you into their community or their group. But you don't really fit. You're not really part of it. As a follow-up of that question, we have to ask, are we merely circumcised in the flesh? Or have we allowed the God of the universe to strip our flesh away and to replace our flesh with his own? Because doing that, stripping away that old man, is the only way that we can truly keep the commands of God. Ezekiel 36.25 says, And I shall sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. From all of your filthiness, and from all of your idols I cleanse you, and I shall give you a new heart, and I shall put a new spirit within you, and I shall take the heart of stone out of your flesh, and I shall give you a heart of flesh. And I shall put my spirit within you, and I shall cause you to walk in my Torah, in my laws, and to guard my judgments, and you shall do them. That new heart, that heart of flesh, is the circumcised heart. And we see that phraseology of the heart of flesh actually used in several places in connection to the circumcised heart. That is the thing that God desires. The symbol of circumcision means nothing without the circumcised heart. The symbol of being a Christian means absolutely nothing without the circumcised heart. It is the circumcised heart that God desires, and the symbols mean nothing without it. The circumcision that is demonstrated for us is a faithful response of discarding my own ability, my own power, and allowing God to take control and to exert his will and his power and his authority over us. When you do this, when you accept God's will in your life, you'll find that you don't care so much about the hardship. You don't care so much about accruing things to yourself. You care about the kingdom of God. You care about his righteousness. You care about doing his will. You care about people. You care about love and kindness, mercy, patience, and self-control. You care about exhibiting those traits. Your old flesh dies. You yourself die. There's nothing left inside of you that is you. You take on him, his identity, his character. And that body of sin is put to death. Does that mean you can't sin, that you won't sin, or that you won't desire to sin? No, not at all. Because that too, it's somewhat symbolic. There is a very real change that occurs in a person's life when their heart is circumcised. But there's also still this flesh that we do inhabit. And sin is connected to our flesh. 
It's not something we can ever be fully separated from because we live in a flesh that is dead. That is death. It is the flesh that was given after man sinned. We're not living in the fullness of what humanity is supposed to be. But when you take Yeshua, that seed of the humanity that was originally created for the garden is ignited again inside of you. And if it's allowed to work and allowed to have its way in you, you become a new creation. You become a seed of new creation in the world. And when you go out into the world, life will follow you and life will become abundant and it will grow. Just remember, your outward signs, your symbols, they mean nothing. You can keep Sabbath all day long, and it means nothing without a circumcision of the heart. You can be circumcised in your flesh. It means nothing without a circumcision of the heart. You can proclaim Yeshua or Jesus as Christ and Lord with your mouth as an outward symbol, and it means nothing without a circumcision of the heart. You have to have that circumcision of the heart. It's that that God has wanted from the beginning. And he gives signs and he gives symbols to man so that we might learn from them and might understand what it is that he expects from us and what it is that he is trying to do in this world. So keep that in mind as you go through this new week. Focus on that. Are you just having some sort of outward expression of faith that does not exist internally? If so, stop professing outwardly and start working on that internal bit. The circumcision before the change of heart, it's useless. It's useless. It's damaging to the kingdom of God. Fix the heart. Fix yourself. Come into community with God. Come into community with fellow believers. Come into union with the kingdom of God on this earth. Fix yourself. Allow yourself to be fixed in humility. Then start pro proclaiming the kingdom. If you get it in the wrong order, just as if you get righteousness in the wrong order with faith, it's death. Don't live in death. Dereshchai. Seek life. Seek life so that you can live it more abundantly. And until next week, Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derish Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Derish Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.